Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Amen. Take your Bibles, open them, would you? Jude chapter 1. There's only one chapter in Jude. We're going to pick up where we left off last time in verse 12. Uh, I was tempted to try to finish the whole chapter, but I do want to spend a whole study talking about and learning about keeping yourselves in the love of God. All this discussion about false teaching, today we'll learn about division, we'll see these strong words, and, and I didn't want to just gloss over this admonition to keep yourselves in the love of God an appropriate encouragement. So that's why we have one more study. But today we want to talk about a Bible study that I've entitled, You Must Remember the Truth. You Must Remember the Truth. And as we're going verse by verse through the book of Jude, it's been so good for us. It does sound, as you'll see in a moment, very familiar uh, to what Peter wrote in his second letter. And Jude, remember, started out writing this letter with the heart to encourage the saints he wanted to talk about the theme of salvation and encourage believers knowing they're loved and they're saved. But somewhere in his mind, the Holy Spirit shifted his thinking and he shifted gears to give strong warning against those who wanted to destroy the church, those who wanted to destroy believers and hinder the work of the gospel throughout Jerusalem and beyond. And so we're learning there's that need to hold fast or to contend for the faith, to literally fight for the truth, to take a stand by making sure that you know the truth and that you're able to defend it when necessary, when the truth is under attack. The best way to deal with falsehoods is to know the truth. So pick up in verse 12. He describes these false teachers as spots in your love feasts. While they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves, they are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots. Now you remember, hold your place here, go back to 2 Peter chapter 2, just a few pages to the left, and you remember Peter used similar illustrations to describe the false teachers then. Notice verse 12, 2 Peter 2 says, but these like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed speak evil of the things they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption. And they'll receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They are spots and blemishes, carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin beguiling unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetousness, covetous practices, and are accursed children. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray. And he goes on to continue to describe them. Jude says something very similar. They're unacceptable in their defiled condition. They've dirtied every gathering they attend. Instead of adding love and peace and purity to these gatherings known as love feasts, they soiled them with their sinful speech and their false teaching. They were taking attention off of Jesus and bringing it on themselves. Now, by the way, 
This is perfect timing where we are in Jude because we've just begun to study Acts chapter 2, verses 40 through 47, where the apostles, they would gather together, Acts 2, 42, and they would continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in the breaking of bread, in fellowship, and in prayer. They would come together and they would gather together in homes and share a meal. That's what a love fest is. A love feast, I should say. A love feast in the first century was a gathering where it was like a church service. Uh, I guess the, the way, the closest thing that we could probably look at in a gathering like ours is when we have potlucks and everybody brings a meal. We all share together in common of the meal. We have a time of prayer. We have a time of song. That's what they would do regularly, especially because much of the early church was poor. So part of the the way of ministering to one another was those that had more would bring together and the poor and those not so poor would be able to share a meal together and be able to gather together not only over food but in the Lord. Now, by the time you get to 1 Corinthians 11, they had begun to corrupt those meat gatherings and they were taking advantage of each other and they bring food but then people would break in line and you can read it, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. But notice their description now of how he describes them, these spots. He says, first of all, these are spots in your love feasts. They feast with you without fear. Now, that without fear is truly a reference to without fear of the Lord. They don't have a recognition of God in their life. And certainly you have met people in our gathering, maybe in a small group, maybe in a little prayer meeting, where they're in there and it's just obvious they have no fear of God. They have no fear of the Lord. You can learn by their language. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the mouth, what? The heart speaks. And so you are able then, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. That's better. (laughs) Both ways it works. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So when you listen to someone and you watch their demeanor, you can truly learn the revelation of their own heart, of who they are. Now, here's the thing about the person that you're listening to, they don't believe that. They don't believe that they give themselves away. They don't believe that they're identifying themselves a certain way. They don't believe because they're so convinced in who they are, what they're going through, what they're saying. They've so rehearsed it, many, so they don't even recognize anymore that this has defiled them. Isn't that what we learn in Hebrews? That bitterness deep down that takes a root in our lives, defiles those around us? How how can bitterness then defile those around us without first defiling ourselves? And they have no fear of God. They're in your group. They have no fear. They're they're spots. They're they're stains. In some translations, this this word was used to describe a hidden reef, hidden and unknown, but very dangerous. And they have no fear. They serve God. Only themselves. Then notice how they're described. First of all, they're described as clouds without water. Clouds without water speaks to us of disappointment. Disappointment. Clouds promise water, but when they don't deliver it, the farmer, again, you're speaking to an agrarian culture, the farmer is upset when the rains don't come. Disappointed. Apostates and false teachers look like leaders who are ready to serve, But when it comes down to it, they're selfish and self-centered. And let me tell you, that is always a disappointment. When you have high hopes for someone, when you lay hands on someone, when you've raised someone up and they've gotten that far and then finally they don't deliver. 
Not only do they not deliver, but they take advantage of the very people that you've entrusted to them. It's a very sad thing to experience, especially when you think of, when you think of a pastor. I can speak for myself. I love this church. I'm committed to this church. My family's committed. We're committed to this community, and we can't do it alone. It's impossible. It's impossible to accomplish what God has called us to do alone, and so we do exactly what we've been discipled. The things that I've learned, I commit to faithful men as well so that they can teach it to them, commit it to them, faithful men and women, so they could teach others also. We watch the ministry as gifts are revealed, and then we're able then to deploy those gifts throughout. And I'm telling you, it's always a disappointment when someone doesn't love this church the way that I love this church. It's truly a disappointment. We, we trusted you. We wanted you to take care of them. We wanted you to step into their lives. We wanted you to wake up in the middle of the night and go to the hospital. We wanted you to serve. We wanted you not to complain. And it's always a disappointment. I, it's, there, it's never not a disappointment. Now, there's other emotions too. There's anger, frustration. But disappointment, it's sad. Like you said, and, and I'm speaking, if I'm looking at you right now, I'll look up. You said, no, then I'm like, I'm not looking at anyone particular, but like you said, you had a servant's heart. You said that God called you to do this. You said, and then even, we even watched you at times demonstrate. You know, the Bible says a deacon must be first proven or tested. So we've watched you, and then when it comes down, right down to it, you're like a cloud without water. Not only did you not, not, only did you not respond with faithfulness, but, but you also hurt people along the way, confused them, spread your nonsense or your opinions or wanted to take advantage of them instead of just giving them the word. It's disappointing. He says, these guys are disappointing. Besides all the other things he says, it's a disappointment to see false teachers and to experience them. Not only that, he says, verse 12, he says, they're carried about by the winds. So they're all over the place. <laughs> you know, they're, just, they're just floating around looking for someone that will listen to them. Someone that will follow them. He, he says, without water, again, carried about by the winds. Notice, late autumns, autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots. As Jude pulls no punches here, the picture is an orchard now. In the fall, the time when farmers are expecting fruit. And what do they find? Fruitless trees. Not at all what was expected. And indeed, a great pain. Jot it down in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. Jesus said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. You'll know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down, thrown into the fire. Therefore, here's the key, verse 20, therefore by their fruits you will know them. And he uses a similar illustration. He says, look, they're like, they're like the late autumn trees where you're waiting for the fruit. You waited, waited, waited. You, you took care of them. You fertilized them. You got rid of the pests. And then they're without fruit and they're twice dead. Then he says in verse 13, they're raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame. So now it, it speaks of their boastful, prideful, 
arrogant words compared to like the waves of sea. Look down at verse 16. It says, these are murmurers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. Perhaps Jude had in mind Isaiah 57, verse 20. But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says God, for the wicked. Isn't that true? There is no peace for the wicked. The way of the transgressor is hard. It's always hard. Notice verse 13, he says not only that, but they're wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. And that is self-explanatory. Judah's like, there's just no hope for the unrepentant false teacher and all the damage they have done. Verse 14. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also saying, behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly, among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in their ungodly way and all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him, Enoch. Now all we really know about Enoch is found in Genesis chapter five and Hebrews chapter 11, and it's not much. But we learn something else about Enoch here. That is, he prophesied. He prophesied, he spoke forth the word of God. God used him that way. And Jude says what Enoch said is coming to pass just as he prophesied. Now we need to pause here just for a second to explain the book of Enoch. Because there are those today that would say that the book of Enoch belongs in the Bible. They actually call it one of the missing books or one of the excluded books. And you'll hear it from time to time. They say it belongs in the canon of Scripture. First of all, let me explain to you the canon of Scripture. The word canon just means a measuring line. So when you hear the word canon, it means a measuring line. And the canon of Scripture means the collection of books that make up the Bible as we know it today. I would even put it this way. The canon of Scripture is the collection of approved books, the 66 six books of the Bible that are in, uh, in the book that you're holding in your lap right now or on your phone. 66 books. The book of Enoch is not one of them. The Old Testament canon was established among the Jews, and the New Testament canon was established by the first couple hundred years in the early church, acknowledging that the book had an apostolic origin, that the content of the book was legitimate, that it was recognized by the churches and the leaders, and there was nothing in those books that are contradictory. Enoch is not considered an inspired book of God. It's what they call an apocryphal book. If you're taking notes, let me spell that for you. It's A-P-O-C-R-Y-P-H-A-L, an apocryphal book, or even some put it in the category of a pseudepigraphal book. And these are important things to understand because you'll hear the book of Enoch at work. Somebody will say, hey, I just read the book of Enoch. It's all kinds of crazy things in it. What do you think? And you go, well, you know, that's an apocryphal book. And you can, you can drop a nice five, a 10 cent word on it. And it's a pseudepigraphal book. And they go, whoa, hey, you really know what you're talking about. Well, you do. Let me spell that word for you. It's P-S-E-U-D-E-P-I-G-R-A-P-H-A. Hopefully I spelled it right. Pseudepigrapha. Now the apocrypha, is a collection of books written in the 400 years between Malachi and Matthew. So at the end of the Old Testament, you have Malachi, 
Then the New Testament opens up with Matthew, John the Baptist coming on the scene. In those 400 years in between those books, God was silent in giving new revelation. He wasn't doing it. He was ready. It, was the, it was for the perfect time for John the Baptist, the final Old Testament prophet, to come on the scene. God, right before the coming of Christ, the eternal Son of God, in the womb of Mary, there was silence. And you know as well as I do, we don't like silence very much. We don't like quietness. When there is quietness, there's always someone to fill the, the gap and say something. As a matter of fact, let me give you a little tip. As you're, as you're in a small group or you have a small group there and you've asked a question and nobody answers and nobody says anything, I'm going to give you a little tip. You ready? You, in your mind, start counting to 10. And to just count very slowly in your mind, one, two. You could even go to 20 if you need to. But I almost guarantee you, within the 10, someone will say something. It's just giving time to draw out, perhaps giving time. Because so, you know, in a small group and you're maybe leading for the first time and you're uncertain, you know, you're not used to silence, just be patient. You don't be impatient. Give some time. Uh, give some time for the Holy Spirit maybe to stir something up. But it's a little trick you can use. Just pause and just wait it out. Just one, two, and just kind of look around, make eye contact with everybody. One, and somebody's going to say something. Because there's always something in the room. You're just drawing it out, let it, giving room for the Holy Spirit to do that. So in between Malachi and Matthew, there's 400 years of silence. But there were a lot of books written during that time. A lot of letters, a lot of books written. The word apocrypha literally means hidden. So we are often referred to as hidden. However, the books that are known today in the apocrypha, the, the collection of books that you will find in the middle of the Roman Catholic Bible and even some of Protestant Bibles, you'll see those books, they're, they're known as the apocrypha. They're filled with errors, contradictions, and inaccuracies which on, on their face show that they're not inspired of God, not written by God. Pseudepigrapha now refers, if, if the book of Enoch is considered in that category, then they would refer to books that were written falsely attributed to reliable authors, like somebody wrote them with the intent of deceiving. So Jude, whatever category you want to put that in, Jude says Enoch did say something, he did speak forth something. He, he did say, behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. He did say, verse 15, to execute judgment of all, to convict all who are ungodly among all their ungodly deeds committed in an ungodly way of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So what do we know about that? What we know is that these words are words that are inspired of God. And you say, well, how do you know that, Ed? Because Jude wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and as he writes these words, we know for a 100% fact that what Enoch said here was inspired of God. And that's it. That's all we know. So you don't allow somebody to go, well, you know, I know the book of Enoch, and, and, and it has all these fanciful things. And, and I know right there, Jude says Enoch was inspired. No, Jude doesn't say that. Jude says that what this says is inspired. He doesn't give approval to everything that's attributed to Enoch. The point Jude is making here is that these false apostate teachers will be judged and they won't get away with it. Not, not only is he speaking about the return of the Lord, 
But he's also saying, look, this is applicable to the false teachers, the ungodly, those with ungodly deeds, those with an ungodly way, those ungodly sinners that have spoken against him. Hold your places here. Turn over to Psalm 94. Notice this. Notice with me Psalm 94 as we turn back. This, these are, you know, sometimes you have to speak strongly to those that will not listen to rebuke. And that's what Jude is doing here. When someone is not teaching false, they're not teaching true, they're teaching false, they need to be spoken to with the truth. And they're to be admonished. And they're to be admonished a second time. And perhaps even a third time. But as they're divisive, the Bible says we're just to move on. Move on. Don't allow false teaching to continue in your midst. Notice this in Psalm 94, verse 3. Psalm 94, verse 3. Psalmist says, Lord, how long will the wicked, how long will the wicked triumph? They utter speech and speak insolent things. All the workers of iniquity boast in themselves. They break in pieces your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They slay the widow and the stranger and murder the fatherless. And yet they say, the Lord does not see, nor does the God of Jacob understand. In Revelation chapter 6, verse 9, it says, when he opened the fifth seal... I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And we're reminded in Jude here that God will faithfully bring his righteous judgment upon false teachers and ultimately upon all who reject him. Ultimately, remember at the great white throne judgment, God judges with the books open. Nothing gets past God. You know, you can just go through things and you think, man, does God even know what's happening? Because like, you know what's happening and you want to do something. But you know, you've chosen to do what God has asked. Just cast your cares upon the Lord. Trust him and wait. But, but you've seen it and it's moved you to action. And then you're kind of wait, but God, I don't see any action. I mean, you obviously see more than I do. Why, why won't you act? Why won't you end this? Why won't it stop? Why, why do the ungodly seem, why do the wicked get away with everything? Why, why can they say that? Why can they do this? And on and on it goes. And yet we know that the Lord will execute judgment. That's just a word from the Lord for someone. The Lord will take care of it. You can trust him. Even when you get to the edge. I know holidays, they bring out all kinds of emotions, all kinds of frustrations, all kinds of just like, man, festivities, but you're not so much in the festive mood. And, and part of it is you just, some of you just think, man, maybe God doesn't see. Maybe God doesn't know. Maybe God, he's just overlooking me. And you know that none of that is true. God has a complete, I would even put it this way. God has a very complete detailed inventory of every person's life and nothing will be missed. Nothing. Nothing will be missed. Well, he goes on to verse 16 and he says, these are murmurers. That's why, you know, when we're murmuring and complaining, murmurs and complainers, like we're believers, we love the Lord. We, we need to be careful not to participate in that kind of behavior because then we're just like the false teachers. We're just like the world. He says, these are murmurers and complainers. And, and by the way, murmuring and complaining, what it does is it stirs up strife. And when strife is stirred up in a church, I forget who said this. I, I wish I remember, but I remember the saying, the devil loves to fish in troubled waters. 
He loves to fish in troubled waters. And just think about this. You, you come to church, you're ready to worship, lifting up your hands, enjoying the brand new song that Pastor Ian invited, that wrote for us with Emily, and he's teaching us, and we're singing about Jesus. And then somebody after the service starts to complain to, to you, starts to stir up something in you, and now your heart's all troubled, and you're in such a vulnerable, like you didn't come here to hear all that. You didn't come here to be upset. You didn't come here to like find out everything that's wrong and what happened here and what's going on there and how bad your ex is and how bad that nobody came for that. They came to worship Jesus. But in the murmuring and complaining, you may come in a weakened place and be susceptible to that. And before you know it, now you're all troubled. You weren't troubled before, but now you're troubled. And now you're upset. And how much we have to guard our hearts as we walk in the Spirit. Because why? Murmurers and complainers, this group were walking, it says in verse 16, according to their own lusts. Their mouths have these great swelling words and they flatter people to gain advantage. I don't know if you've ever been flattered for someone to gain advantage over you, but it feels horrible. Because flattery is deception. When someone flatters you, flattery and somebody just commending you, those are two different things. Someone just appreciating you and flattery are two different things. Flattery has a way to gain some advantage or to gain some inroad with you, to gain, to take from you. Remember Jesus, he came to give, not to take. A true servant of the Lord is gonna give. He's not gonna take, she's not gonna take. So flattery has the position of prepping you and preparing you to take advantage of you. It's just always a bummer. Because, you know, as believers, we think the best about people, generally. Generally, we do give you the benefit of the doubt. Generally, we do receive you. We, we, all, we know we all have past. We've all made mistakes. We're all sinners, and we recognize there's sin among us. But then people will come in, select people will come in and try to take advantage of your genuine sincerity. Even spiritual leaders, even people on TV or radio or whatever, they'll take advantage of your genuine, sincere desire to worship God. And flattery is one of the tools. They're out to please themselves, taking advantage of others. Really the essence of any false teaching. Any false teaching to take your eyes off of Jesus is in order to get your eyes on man. That's what false teaching is. To corrupt God, to diminish God, to discredit God, and anyway, to make... Somebody has made God in their own image, Romans chapter 1, and now they want you to follow the God they made in their own image for their own advantage. Pride, arrogance, whatever it might be. They grumble, they complain to stir, stir up things in you. You know, I, I think of, again, the tools that are available today to stir up uh, angst and frustration. I mean, I think that if social media was a person, it would be a false teacher. Because all it does is stir up strife. All it does is give opportunity for everyone to share their opinion, stir up strife. You know, it's like, like somebody typing on social media, they don't think that's sin. It's like the same as doing it into your face, someone's face. It's probably worse. In many ways, if you're complaining and murmuring on social media, it's probably worse because you're affecting so many more people. You go, but Ed, don't you understand? Don't you see? Yeah, I live in the same world you do. And the Bible says for us as believers not to murmur and complain but to cast our cares upon the Lord. I mean, the whole world, we, we, we've been saying and saying and saying, saying throughout all our history, we trust God, we trust God, we trust God. And then when something happens you don't like, all of a sudden you act like you don't trust God anymore. 
It's like, well, you know, if it was back to where this was, and if we got back to this and we got back, no, why don't you just get back to being right with the Lord? And that's why we're going to see in our final study, it's really important that you keep yourselves in the love of God. That's the safe place. You won't be a murmurer there. You won't be a complainer there. You won't take advantage of people there. You won't be a flatterer there. You, you will just be so caught up in the love of God, but you have to keep yourself there. You have to keep yourself there. And we'll explain that in our next study. So they have, notice uh, in verse 19, we'll jump ahead. In verse 19, it says, these are sensual persons. Again, if you like to write in your Bible, circle that word sensual. You can write next to it worldly. So worldly speaks more of the person living apart from Christ, living for things apart from Christ, rather than just all the little activities in the world. Like we have, as the church, have kind of made worldliness all these little activities. But really, worldliness comes from a heart separated from God. That's where worldliness comes. And when you walk in the Spirit, you won't fulfill the lust of your flesh. They're sensual. They notice uh, not having the Spirit. But I skipped over. Notice this phrase, who cause division. They're bent on satisfying their flesh. Yes, in the love feasts, at the potluck, in the home fellowship, in the small prayer group, with the women, with the men, in the mixed multitude. Yes, among us. This is the type of behavior that is obvious. Our faith should be growing steadily. Now, I want to close with a couple of thoughts here before we head out. First of all, if you're taking notes, I want you to understand this. Because there isn't anyone among us, I think, that hasn't been used to cause division, all right? So when we're talking about causing division right now, there is a sense where there's the false teachers here causing divisions. But I want to step back and just allow us to look in the mirror of God's word ourselves. There really isn't any one of us. I mean, if you want to come and make a case to me that you have never caused division on purpose or on accident, please come and tell me. You'll be the first one. I will tweet it and I will post it that I did meet one person that never caused division. I mean, I, I think that this is rampant among us in one way or another. Of course, there are people that do it on purpose. There are people that are just divisive. That's for sure. But just in general, okay, let's back up for a second and just say in general, division has been caused among us, uh, by us, on more than one occasion. So if you're with me on that, I want you to consider this. Anytime division is caused by us, we are not walking in the Spirit. It is not a spiritual thing to cause ungodly division. Division that stirs up believers against believers. I'll just read a few scriptures to you so you can meditate on them, but understand what the Bible says about division. These six things, Proverbs 6, 16. These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift to running evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among the brethren. So not only does division reflect a lack of walking in the Spirit, or like false teachers, they don't even have the Spirit. That's what Jude is saying for the false teachers here. But for us as believers, by way of application, Anytime we are purposely causing division, we're not walking in the Spirit, number one. Number two, we're in a position of the hatred of God. Did you notice he, that it says a look, a tongue, a hand, heart, 
feet. And then he turns to people, false witnesses, liars, and those that cause division. They're both, they're, they draw the hatred of God. That's a heavy consideration for us. They draw the hatred of God, division. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 28. A false witness shall perish, but the man who hears him will speak endlessly. So thirdly, division puts you into a place of living in falsehood. You're not living truth. You're not in the light. You're not walking in the light. Division, divisiveness, a false witness is going to perish. But the man who hears him is going to speak endlessly of everything that he heard. Just keep sharing it over and over and over again. New Testament, James chapter 3, verse 14. James chapter 3, verse 14. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual. And the reason I chose this is sensual. These are sensual pieces. So this is now new covenant to believers. Sensual, the very next word is demonic. Now you're cooperating with the goal of the devil, and that's to kill, steal, and destroy. That's what division does. I know we would never really think of us co-op, like we're believers, we love Jesus, we're born again. But I'm telling you, division puts you on the wrong side of the will of God. And you look at the descriptions of the false teachers, and you know, aside from the descriptions that speak of them not being believers, their behavior is replicated by believers all the time. So much of the effort and energy of pastors and leaders in the church is try to bring unity where division has come. Whether it's in a family, whether it's in a fellowship, you know, when you think of and you've heard, sto- you've heard stories of, of major church splits, it's all just division. It's arrogant, boastful, prideful men and women unwilling to yield, cooperating with the plans and purposes of the devil sensual and demonic. Why? Because where envy, this is the end of James 3, 14 through 16. In verse 16, he says, where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. Okay, so now we turn a corner as we close in verse 17. But you, beloved. So we just convinced we don't want to be a part of anything, false teachers, none of this junk. It's divisive, destructive. But he says, you, beloved, Remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why do they know the words of the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ? Because of Acts 2.42. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Remember what we learned? What was the apostles' doctrine at the time of Acts chapter 2? The entirety of the Old Testament and the apostles remembering and teaching the teachings of Jesus. That was the apostles. They didn't have the New Testament then. Remember, because in Acts 2.42, Saul of Tarsus wasn't even saved yet. And most of the New Testament was written by a guy at the time of Acts 2, wasn't even saved yet. So the apostles' doctrine in Acts 2 was the entirety of the Old Testament pointing to Messiah and the teachings of Jesus as retaught through the apostles. So here they are. Remember. Remember the apostles' teachings. How, verse 18, they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. So, but you, in the midst of all this, in the midst of all the drama and difficulty of the world, 
in the midst of all the division, again, never in the lifetime that I've been a believer for 30 plus years have I ever seen the church of Jesus Christ so divided. I've never seen our own little family of churches, Calvary Chapel, so divided. So in the midst of all that, but you guys, let all that happen around you. But you guys, you remember what the Lord said. You remember the word. You go back to basics. You walk simply with your Savior. You don't need to get drawn up in all everyone's flattering words, all their divisive talk. You don't need to get caught up in everything. You remember. You want to be effective in the last days? You want to be effective in the midst of drama? Maybe it's not church drama for you. Maybe it's family drama, okay? In the midst of your family drama, you remember the word of the Lord. It will give you guidance and direction of how to handle the drama and difficulties of your life. But especially when there's confusion, sensual people, difficult things, everything's happening around you, it's so hard, but you just remember the word. Base your life upon the word, church. Hasn't that been the theme in the last couple months? Read your Bible every day, pray. Just remember the word. Be a man that loves God's word. Be a woman that loves God's word. From the very beginning, the devil has attacked the word of God. From the very beginning, he's wanted you to doubt it. He's wanted you to undermine the steadfast word, like everything else is in chaos. And then you come to the steadfast word and maybe you feel like the psalmist of God, everyone's getting away with it. I don't believe you anymore. No, remember the word. Be patient. Take in the word and remember it. Paul warned to Timothy. Peter warned. Second Peter 3. These are all warnings that continue even to this day. Now I get to warn you of it. And so that's why we're committed and we'll stay committed it's how I was discipled. It's how I'm going to teach you. And it's okay that others may not agree, but I am committed to teach the Bible verse by verse, systematically, chapter by chapter, book by book. We are a church, and everything is so cool how God wants. You can't put studies together like on purpose. When you're teaching in one book on the weekend and then all the timing, you just put it together. And I'm reading this and I'm like, didn't I just say this? I think I just said this not too long ago. Well, we're simply gonna use, we don't just simply use the Bible or refer to it sometimes. We actually teach it. That's the type of church you walked into. You're listening on the radio right now. You're listening to a live broadcast, unless it's Abounding Grace. Like right now, you're listening to a live broadcast. And, the, and what you're listening to is just the systematic, verse-by-verse teaching. We started Jude a couple weeks ago. We're going to finish it next week. And we start from beginning to end. We're not just going to mention the Bible. It's not just going to be a, something that's up here so it looks good on camera. We are going to use the Word. And we're going to commend you to use the Word. We're going to ask you to turn there. We're going to ask you to memorize it. We're going to ask you to look it up. We're going to ask you to take notes. We're going to ask you to pray over it, read it, meditate on it. We teach the word. And we use a methodology, in case you ever hear this word, that's known as expository teaching. Expository teaching. Verse by, we're not the only church that teaches verse by verse. A lot of great churches teach verse by verse, just not many. So don't ever think that we're the only ones. We're not the only ones. But not many do. That's not the popular thing. Why? In the last days, Paul told young Timothy that ears will start to itch. And with itching ears, they'll heap up for themselves teachers because they don't want to endure sound doctrine. And it's not enduring long teachings. That's sometimes interpreted that. Oh, they don't want to endure. That's not what, it, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says they don't want to endure sound doctrine. Why? Because sound doctrine goes right to the heart. 
When the Bible's taught properly, in the, and you're, even if it's taught improperly, like mistakes are made, but you're open to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will still get you. Because the only time I'm absolutely accurate is when I'm reading the Bible. And sometimes you'll notice, sometimes I even miss a word here and there. But the Lord will take care of that, because you can read it. And we're committed to it. In Nehemiah 8.8, 8, it says this. They read distinctly from the book, in the law of God, they gave the sense, and they helped them to understand the reading. How we were taught, observation, when you read the Bible and you see it, and you see all, everything that's there, then you ask good questions, that leads to interpretation, and then the Bible, every Bible verse, every Bible truth only has one interpretation. Not mine, not yours. You know, sometimes you'll be in a small group and they go, what do you think it means? What do you think it means? It really doesn't matter what you think it means. What does it mean? That's the right question to ask. So how do you feel about it? How do you feel about it? It doesn't matter what you feel about it. What does it say? And how God is going to use it in your life. So there's not two interpretations, ten interpretations. There's just one. And it's God. What did he mean when he wrote it? Not the favorite pastor, not, not somebody, it's not some systematic theology. Uh, it, and you know, that's one of the surprises of the Bema seat. We'll just find out what we got wrong and what we got right. Maybe we'll be surprised by how much we really did get right. And they're like, yes, Lord. Yes, I was really concerned about that. Because there's so much in there. It's like, oh, I don't know, Lord. Maybe I missed a word there or a, a phrase. But that's what we do. We read it. We give you the sense, the interpretation, and then we help you to understand it. What does it mean in your life today? The word of God must get inside of you. You must hear it, receive it, obey it. The pastor teaches, you receive it, and then we all do it, right? Faith without works is dead all the time. You got to do the word. You want the meat of the word? You have to do the word. Remember Jesus said, and again, even if you um, have a teacher that maybe didn't explain something clearly, or you have a hard time understanding what you're reading, listen to the promise of Jesus. You can claim this promise. You ready? This is the promise of Jesus. The helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things. Isn't that a great promise? The Holy Spirit's with you. You can understand the scriptures with the help of the Holy Spirit. He'll teach you and bring to your remembrance everything that Jesus said, that I said to you. Or he says again in John 15, 20, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll keep yours also. In John 16, 4, Jesus said, but these things I've told you that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. So we're living in exciting times, hard, challenging, difficult, as I've used the word before, unprecedented, things we've never experienced before in our generation. You know, we've been talking about the coming of the Lord, talking about the rapture, teaching about it, teaching about it, the end times, darkness, uh, difficult times are going to come, perilous times are going to come. And now that they're happening, I think the shock factor is we just didn't think it was going to happen in our lifetime. We're like, yeah, it's going to be the future. It's going to be the end times. Yeah, it's kind of... But now it's happening so quick and so rapid, you could feel overwhelmed. It's traumatic. Some of you are, are dealing with the trauma of the reality of the days. And you can just ask for God to heal your heart and heal your mind. And I know you probably didn't expect to live in the last days. You probably didn't expect to live with perilous times. You probably didn't expect... It was just yet future, yet future. But so much of what we've been reading seems so much now. And families are divided. Jesus said it would be so. 
and churches are divided, and believers are under great tribulation. And it's just like the labor, labor pains, right? The labor pains is just the beginning. And that's not intended to scare you, or it's just intended to inform you, like, hey, as you see things become more intense, as you feel things that become closer, like just like labor pains, right? The more intense and the closer they get, baby's coming. And just like in the end times, more intense, closer together, it's going to happen. And, and it just seems like right now, the way things are going, it's just like the society just wants to keep us all nervous and we just can't, like we don't know what to do. We think it's going to be, we think we got our legs under us and boom, no, you can't do this and yeah, do this and what about this? And, you know, they're going to run out of Greek letters pretty soon on what the thing that's happening with the virus. But, you know, I'll tell you what, every time you think about a Greek letter, I want you to think about people in our own church have died from the virus. I want you to remember that. I want you to remember that the way of ministry is people. The way of ministry is to minister to their families. It's to find a way to visit them in the hospital. It's to minister to the pain that are in people's lives. Let the world be the world, but please be the church. And yeah, you know, it's just unbelievable what days in which we're living, but people are still people. And God still uses the word, spirit of God, using the word of God and the people of God to do what? Reach people. Don't ever, whatever Greek letters, whatever they're coming up with, don't forget there's a person, there's a person, there's a person. Don't let big numbers, you know, even diminish and go, well, you know, 800, I think the latest number right now is 800,000 lives have been lost to complications to COVID. And then you go, well, you know, maybe their numbers are wrong. Okay, maybe they are. 500,000. Yeah, I don't think it's, okay, 100. What number does it need, would it need to be for you to care about lost lives? Well, you know, compared to this over here, yeah, we should care about those lost lives too. Yeah, but you know, over this, it, this kills more. Yeah, we should. Every life that's lost should break the heart of a believer. Especially if they died before they knew Christ. Especially. And that's just the world. Maybe the Lord is opening our eyes to the reality of the pain in the world so that we could take the gospel into it. We don't need to be fighting the wrong battles, right? We need to contend for the faith. We need to fight for the truth. But what's the best way to fight it? Know it and live it. Right? A healthy church, healthy sheep, you get a healthy sheep. And it seems like um, I'm repeating myself from earlier studies because the Lord's emphasizing that in our church. So Father, we pray as we learn about these false teachers that and even, even in Jude, as he's saying, man, falsehood, 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 he says, but you guys stay in the word. You guys, as we'll learn in a moment, keep yourselves in the love of God. You guys be the believers. You know what Jesus taught. You know what was said. You know. Of course the world is dark. They don't know you. They're rebellious against you. There are many antichrists already in the world, John said, in the first century. How much more now, 2,000 years later? So forgive us, God, for our divisive ways. Should we be guilty of that? Forgive us, God, for our lack of compassion and empathy. Lord, help us to sort out the frustrations we're feeling, the injustices we're experiencing, the hardships that come our way, whether it's the world or our home, our family, whatever. We just commit ourselves to you as the humans that we are, we don't want to live normal, natural lives, God. We pray for a supernatural outpouring of your spirit. And I pray for those that have lost loved ones. It seems like not a day goes by that we don't get a prayer request 
someone that went to the hospital and didn't come home. And I think of our own family, not, not necessarily COVID, but I think of our own Cindy Pacquiao, who's now with the Lord, but her husband and her sister that emailed me and just so much pain, Lord. So much hardship, especially now up against the holidays. So I just pray for a spirit of compassion upon us, Lord, that we would know the truth. But you said that we could also worship in spirit and in truth. You said that you are the way, the truth, and the life. And so give us that sense, Lord, not to just know doctrine, but to know the author of the doctrine. Help us to abide in you, to trust you in these traumatic days. I pray for healing on trauma. I know, I know there's a brother with us right now who's just so traumatically affected by these days. And I pray you comfort him and his wife. You'd help him, Lord, give him direction in this new season of his life. Think of this sister that's grieving greatly, Lord, and it's just really not caught up in what's happening. It's her own personal pain. I pray for her. I pray, God, as all these things are coming up in our lives, that it's not just our church, but it's also our coworker. It's also the person that's delivering stuff to us. It's also the person that's at the market or, you know, in the restaurant. And we just want to be the church more than we ever have been before. So we yield ourselves to you, God that we might be used in greater capacities in these last days. And even as that brother on the radio reminded us that we would be to whom much is given, much is required. So give us wisdom on what that looks like. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.